hello to everybody who's here. And um, we'll, let's pray. Father, thank you that... Um, Thank you that you're here, Lord, by your spirit, that you are here among us and that you say to us where two or three are gathered in your name, there you are. And so we can be sure you're here, Lord God. We know that you're here anyway because wherever we are, you are, and that's a wonderful, wonderful thing, Lord God. So I pray for today, Lord. We want to give it to you. I want to give you the whole day, everything that's said and everything that's discussed and all of our thoughts, actually, and all of our feelings, Lord, I, I want to give mine over to you right now so that I can just make space for, to hear your voice, to hear you talk to me, to hear you guide me and direct me, and, and to hear you speak love to me, to speak your words of love to me. And I pray, Lord, that I will listen and that we will all listen and um, be changed by what we hear. And so... Uh, I thank you, Lord, that you promised to do that and that as we ask you to apply things to our lives, you certainly do that. And I praise you, Father, that we can be sure that your promises are yea and amen in Christ Jesus and that there is nothing, absolutely nothing, that you would not do to bring us closer to you. So I thank you, Lord, and I praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen, amen. Uh, we're going to start in Jeremiah 16. So if you've got your Bible, please turn to Jeremiah 16, verse 19 to 21. Um, that's a thought. I better get my Bible. <laughs> Jeremiah 16, 19 to 21. O Lord, my strength and my stronghold and my refuge in the day of distress... To you the nations will come. This is verse 19, sorry, verse 19 to 21. So Jeremiah 16, 19 to 21. O Lord, my strength and my stronghold and my refuge in the day of distress, to you the nations will come from the ends of the earth and say, our fathers have inherited nothing but falsehood, futility and things of no profit. Can man make gods for himself? Yet they are not gods. Therefore behold... I am going to make them know. This time I will make them know my power and my might, and they shall know that my name is the Lord. Jeremiah, known as the weeping prophet, uh, because he saw, uh, he lived through the, great, the exile of the Jews uh, of Judah to Babylon, and uh, who saw visions of how long it would take for them to come back and uh, actually, not just so he, he was speaking not only into his own time and uh, the prophecy of 70 years after his own time, and then later to the first coming and the second coming of Christ Jesus. Um, Jeremiah looked ahead and saw the regathering that we've seen in our day to, uh, of Israel to their own land. And he also, I think that must have been amazing to him to see the coming back after their exile in Babylon and then the coming back to the land now. But it also must have been amazing to him to see what he talks about in these verses. And what he talks about is that to you, God, all the nations will come. All the nations will come. So in fact, he's talking about a time still long future for us a time when every knee will bow and every tongue confess Jesus is Lord. I mean, amen, yeah, amen. That is an amazing thing. Now, can you imagine being Jeremiah? It's about 600 BC. <laughs> Christ hasn't come the first time. He hasn't 
the Jews are only just going off into captivity in Babylon because they refused to, to live the way God wanted them to. So he's, he's seeing his own time and weeping. He's seeing that it's going to take 70 years of exile before they come back and he's weeping. And then he's, he's weeping about the fact that they're going to have this, this terrible, it's history for us but future for them, they're going to have this terrible time because they're not going to bow their knee to the Lord. And then, but he, he can come in with this joyful shout of prophecy that one day, one day, not only will we be with the Lord, but um, all nations will bow. And I think that must have amazed him, actually, that every nation in the world would bow to the God of Israel. I mean, doesn't that amaze you? It amazes me. And to be Jeremiah in 600 BC, that must have been a, a, just an incredible, incredible understanding. Um, but actually, he's not the only one. Isaiah had the same uh, vision. In fact, Isaiah had a much fuller vision of the, the, t- the whole of time. Um, Zechariah had a vision. And so we'll just read those, um, a couple of those. Isaiah chapter 2. Um, Isaiah 2, verses 1 to 5. So go back a bit in your Bible. Isaiah 2. Uh, verse 1 to 5. The word which Isaiah the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Now it will come about that in the last days the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains and will be raised above the hills and all the nations will stream to it. And many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For the law will go forth from Zion, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he will judge between the nations, and will render decisions for many peoples. And they will hammer their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they learn war. Come, house of Jacob, and let us walk in the light of the Lord. This is Isaiah who, again, as I say, he's receiving uh, prophecies from the Lord, receiving words from the Lord that talk to him and through him to the people of Israel about the whole of time, talk to him actually about um, even to the end of the the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. So, um, again, prophecies about the fact that the nations will come, all peoples will come and worship the Lord God. Zechariah chapter 8, verse 20 um, Zechariah, almost to the end of the Old Testament. Zechariah 8, verse 20 to 23. Thus says the Lord of hosts, It will yet be that peoples will come, even the inhabitants of many cities. The inhabitants of one will go to another, saying, Let us go at once to entreat the favour of the Lord and to seek the Lord of hosts. I will also go. So many peoples and mighty nations will come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to entreat the favour of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, in those days ten men from all the nations will grasp the garment of a Jew, saying, let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. These are amazing statements, amazing promises that these men received directly from God. They heard God speak to them and they spoke these promises out. And I mean, I can't even imagine what they must have felt when they heard God's voice and when they 
actually heard what he was saying. I mean, it's just almost beyond, beyond belief. Yet they wrote this down for you and for me. So we can know so much about our future. We can know so much about what's to come. But actually, I was having a conversation. In fact, Rosie and I were having dinner last night. And it was really interesting because uh, we were talking about uh, how we say the Lord's coming back at any time. He, he, he could be here today. Or he, he could be here tomorrow. And how our children have heard that. Well, mine haven't heard it for all their lives, but they've heard it for a while. Our children have heard that, and he's still not come. And so they're thinking, really? I mean, really? You've been saying that all my life. Really? So can you imagine being Jeremiah or Isaiah or Zechariah or Micah or any of the Old Testament prophets or Joel or any of them? Can you imagine being those people, knowing that Christ was coming the first time, that he would come back a second time and yet not living to see that happen? And I went to bed last night and I was thinking about what we talked about. We were talking about too much, actually, because it was all going on in my head. <laughs> I was thinking, oh, I don't want to put that in tomorrow. But anyway... Um, and I was thinking about this concept of we live with this fact that Jesus is coming back. And yet we've grown so accustomed to it that we almost don't believe it's happening. Almost. And we certainly don't believe it's going to be today. I mean, really, do you? Put your hand up if you really believe. Oh, Francois, don't be so spiritual. <laughs> yeah, okay, so he could come today. Oh, right, well, that would be good. <laughs> we wouldn't, all of us wouldn't go back, so we'd all go together. But we do live in this kind of paradigm, this kind of parallel universe where we know something's true, but we don't actually live in the truth of it. It's hard to live in the truth of it, that Christ could come now. And am I ready? And I thought about that, actually, and I was thinking about a call to arms. This, this message, I think, is is the most important one that I've ever spoken. I honestly believe that. It makes me cry to think about it. Because I think I said last time, I come up with titles long before I know what I'm going to talk about. I mean, how, how does that happen? <laughs> and then suddenly the Lord, you know, starts to give me what I'm going to talk about. And this, a call to arms, is about the fact that Christ really is on the verge of coming back. And if that's true, what does that mean for all the people that don't know him? What does it mean for all the people in my life, all the people in your life, in our families, our friends, our neighbours, our workplace? What does it mean for them? And actually anyone who's read through the Bible knows what it means for them. It means that they will face a tribulation such as has never been experienced on this planet. They will experience a terrible, terrible time as God pours out his wrath on this planet. And if nothing else, isn't that the call? Isn't that the call? <laughs> to do something, to do anything, to, to bring about the conversion or the, the thinking that someone might have to, well then is it really true? Is it really true? If it's true, where am I? So that's really what today's about, but it's a long day, so there's a lot, lot of detail in there. Um, the Gentile nations, everybody will one day confess their idolatry. 
that is, of course, those who survive the tribulation. If you read through Revelation, you read that four-fifths of the world's population will not survive. At least four-fifths. 80% of the world's population will not survive. Now, whether we're here or gone, when people debate that, whether the rapture comes before the tribulation, during or, or at the end, I mean, I, I'm not here to debate that, but whatever happens, 80% of the world's population are dead when Christ returns and stands on the planet. That's the 20% of the nations who will go to Jerusalem and bow their knee. Think about 80% of your own family. 80% of your street. I mean, 80%, I live in a, used to, I don't live in a village at the moment, but that's where my house is. So, you know, 250 people. What's the percentage of that? I don't know. 210, 220 will be dead when Jesus returns. They will have died in the tribulation. In Revelation chapter 6, um, you get... Uh, a statement made by uh, people on earth, Revelation 6, verse 12 to 17. And it's a chilling, a chilling statement. Revelation 6, verse 12 to 17. I looked when he broke the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair, and the whole moon became like blood. And the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree casts its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. The sky was split apart like a scroll when it is rolled up and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. Then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us. And hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who is able to stand? John writing this, the vision of Revelation, writing those words. And surely he must have thought back to Jeremiah's words. Therefore, behold, I am going to make them know. This time I will make them know my power and my might, and they will know that my name is the Lord. These days are coming, and God has been calling from the beginning of time. He's been calling from the beginning of mankind. He called them in the Garden of Eden, and he has called them ever since. He has been calling people to come and bow their knee and repent. He has been calling and calling and calling. And because we are the sort of people we are, we think that calling will go on forever. We think it will just continue and continue and continue. Second Peter is the next study we're going to do uh, on a weekly, uh, as a weekly study. We're going to start in January. Second Peter. And Second Peter tells us, Peter writes in there, that men are scoffers saying, well, where is the promise of his coming? All things continue just as they always have. And Peter will explain to them, he'll come down in that chapter and he'll say, but know this, that God is not slow about his promise, as some think he is, but he is patient, wanting all men to come to repentance and not perish. None to perish and all to come to repentance. 
That's 2 Peter 2, uh, 3, verse 10. That's why we live in this time. You and I live in the time in between. We live in the time between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. And we are here to fight. We are not here to live a good life, to have a great time. We are not here to enjoy ourselves. We have just been deceived into thinking that that's what this life is all about. We have been told that God wants us happy and he wants us healthy and he wants us you know, successful and he wants us to live a good life, be good people, be nice people, talk to your neighbours, be kind. He said all that, we are being fed the lie that God is only interested in how you live uh, to be a good person. But we are in a war and people are dying because we're not fighting. And that makes me cry. That makes me shudder, actually. That I know people who might have gone to be the, with the Lord, I mean, who might have died, who did not know the Lord, and I did not tell them, or I did not show them the reality of who God is. The heart of God is to bring people to repentance. The heart of God is to save people. So what do you think now, for you and for me, who are called Christians, who have come into the family of God, who have received the great mercy and grace that comes through Jesus Christ, what do you really think God wants you to do? He wants you to live the truth of the gospel. He wants you to speak it and to live it and to, and to stand on it and to shout it out. He wants you to make sure that every person who knows you knows Jesus, knows Jesus. Not necessarily, you can't bring them into the, the relationship, but you can tell them who he is. And it's not just words, it has to be every part of your life. And the reason that you have to be consciously doing this is because we have an enemy who wants to destroy the human race. If you ever doubted that, read the newspaper. If you ever thought that that might not be true, that that was a little bit far-fetched, that that was a bit over the top, then you just have to turn your TV on or pick up the newspaper or look at what people are doing. I just read the other day, and it made me laugh, actually. It made me laugh. A Danish man who has said, if people can choose their gender, I want to choose what, day, what age I am. Because he's 69, and he can't get a girlfriend on Tinder. So he wants to say he's 49, and then he'll get many more girls, and he'll be able to work. He can start work again, and he, can, he said, I'm fit and I'm healthy, I don't feel 69, why can't I be 49? And actually, he's going to the courts in Denmark. I, I mean, honestly, this is the world we live in. This is the world we live in. And this is the enemy who is having a field day in people's heads. He is having a field day with the minds of people twisting and changing and putting darkness in there and, and stirring it all up. How important is it that you're the light? <laughs> How
How important is it that you hear Paul say, don't get drunk on wine, but be filled with the Spirit. You were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. That's Ephesians 5. How important is that then? In a world that is ever darker, darker and darker and darker. I'm going to say I want to be 39. My goodness, why not? I'm going to be 39. Can you see how ridiculous this is? And, and all of it, what does it all do? In the end, what does it all do? The discussions about gender, the discussions about age, the discussions about uh, homosexuality, the discussions about all of it. What, they distract from the fundamental, uh, uh, the fundamental truth that you are dead without God. And if you fill your minds with everything else, you will die eternally. You will be dead forever. And how will they ever know if Christians don't tell them? So um, today is about us understanding that we have an enemy and he is mighty and he is strong and he has followers and he is out there all the time. It's about this understanding that we are in a war. I wish we could all get uniforms, because then we'd know. We'd know and we'd recognize each other in the street. And we could say, oh, yeah, 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 you're on the same side as me, yeah. We are in a war. We are fighting a battle. But people are not our enemy. People are the hostages of the enemy. And when you save the, when you, when people are taken hostage and you're the rescue team, you're the SAS going in, you don't go in all guns blazing and shoot the hostages, do you? You go in and you set the hostages free so that you can deal with the enemy who has taken them. We've got too many Christians shooting the hostages. We're just spending all our time shooting the people who are caught up in the snares of Satan. Too many Christians fighting on so many different fronts and none of them about the reality of what is the, the bottom line problem. Man is a sinner and he needs a saviour and his name is Jesus and if you don't speak that name, no one will. That's the bottom line. That's where we are and we can't waste any more time. You know, and, and I, say, I always say it's not about me. It's not about you. It's not about me. And then we go home to our house and we do our job and we have our whatever. I have my unsaved husband and you have whatever you have. And, and then you've got so-and-so and they really get on your nerves. And I mean, honestly, if they just knew this or you get sick or something happens or, and it, then it becomes all about you. It's all about you. You don't mean it to be. You don't mean it to be all about you. But it becomes all about you. Because you can't see out of your own situation. So you have to do something to train your eyes to look out and not to look in. It's not sin that you're making it all about you. You didn't mean to do it. You're not deliberately turning away from the Lord, but you're getting embroiled and tangled up with the stuff of your life. And that stuff is keeping you effectively at the base camp 
and you are not out in the army fighting the battle. Um, sorry, excuse me. This is our last conference this year. Um, and I think, honestly, that this is just so crucial that this time we get that understanding that we have to go into 2019, if we even have a 2019, we have to go into that January the 1st, having made a decision that I will live as far as I am able, understanding that I am fighting a war. And that I am on the victor's side. I am going to win, but I have to fight. I have to fight. Throughout the Bible, you read about people who understood that. Who understood it? If you don't believe me, go to Hebrews 11 and just read through Hebrews 11. Especially read about the people who don't, aren't named. Because you get a lot of names there in Hebrews 11. Moses, Noah, Abraham, you know, on and on, Barak, you know, lots of names. And then you get to a section about halfway through and it's people who are not named. Men of whom, or people of whom the world is not worthy, gave up their, women who gave up their dead, gave up their uh, families and their husbands and their spouses, and you know, people who lived and died for God. For God. We're not going to, because they're not named, it's hard to trace them in Scripture, so we're going to look at just a couple of, to start with, a couple of... Um, people um, that God called, called in their own time and then called for our time actually to speak to us and they're included obviously in scripture. We're going to look at Jeremiah and, um, and Isaiah's call first of all. So uh, Jeremiah chapter 1 verse 1 to 2. Actually we'll read Isaiah first, sorry. Isaiah 6 verse 1 to 8. This is the call of Isaiah. Um, You'll know these verses. I mean, they're quoted so many different times. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the uh, thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. This call that Isaiah received is your call. It's your call and my call. We didn't live in the year of King Uzziah. So in the year of Queen Elizabeth, I saw the Lord 
definitely in the reign of Queen Elizabeth, you saw the Lord. You saw him high and lifted up. You saw, you may not have seen the train of his robe, but you saw the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's who Isaiah saw. John chapter 12, verse 37. John says that when uh, Isaiah spoke of him, he spoke of Jesus. So Isaiah saw the Lord Jesus before his incarnation. He saw the Lord high and lifted up, and so did you. Have you believed in the Lord Jesus? Then you have seen him with the eyes of your faith. You have seen him. If you haven't seen the Lord Jesus in any way but in the eyes of, with the eyes of your faith, then you probably are not saved. You are not in the army. You are probably not ready to fight. You're not. You think maybe you are, but you're not. You must see Jesus with the eyes of your faith. You must see God. You must see God in order to be able to tell me about him. You can't tell anybody about someone you haven't met. Do you see what I mean? You have to have met him. Now, I'm not, I don't have pictures, usually. I don't. I think maybe I've had one picture my whole spiritual life. So I don't have pictures. I'm not saying you're going to see the face of God. What I am saying is you need to be able to have this experience, this, this absolute sure, certain knowledge that you have met a person called Jesus. You've met him. You've talked to him. You know he's there. You have an experience with him. That is what being born again is. That's what a relationship with Jesus is. It's that you could actually almost describe him to someone else. Isaiah saw the Lord. So did you. If you didn't, that's okay. Just ask him. Tell him you want to see him. God wants you more than you want him. Jeremiah, the same call. Different time, different place, but the same call. Jeremiah chapter 1. Isaiah said, Woe is me, for I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. And Jeremiah will say something very similar. Jeremiah chapter 1. Uh, from verse 1. The words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, of the priests who were in Anathoth, in the land of Benjamin, to whom the word of the Lord came in the days of Josiah, the son of Amon, king of Judah, in the thirteenth year of his reign. It came also in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, until the end of the eleventh year of Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, until the exile of Jerusalem in the fifth month. Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I have appointed you a prophet to the nations. Then I said, Alas, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak because I am a youth. But the Lord said to me, Do not say I am a youth, because everywhere I send you, you shall go, and all that I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. Then the Lord stretched out his hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. See, I have appointed you this day over the nations and over the kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. You see the similarity. Uh, Isaiah 
knowing he is a man of unclean lips, and the angel taking the coal and touching his lips and him being made clean. And Jeremiah, knowing he is too young, he is too young to speak and I won't know what to say. And God touching his lips and giving him his word. Wherever you fall in those, in between those two, then God is today touching your mouth. If he hasn't done it already, he is doing that today. And to me too, I'm not saying anything about you and not me, he is doing that today. Why? So that you have the words to say. So that you have the words to say. But more, actually. More, Maureen. What else? Yes. Yes, show them, talk to them, yes. But in, the, in God, touching their mouth. See, this is what we... Because we're not the... We, we didn't live in this time. Wouldn't you have loved? Wouldn't you have loved to be Isaiah? Oh, my goodness. And you just... You, you have this vision of the Lord and you see the temple and you see the angels and, or Jeremiah and, and, and Jeremiah's just there and suddenly God's there. Wouldn't you have loved to be them? But what happened after that for them? What, what was absolutely certain forever, though they met loads of trouble, though they were opposed on every front, though they had a hard life being what God wanted them to be? What did they know that they knew that they know that they know? that God was with them, that he was real, and that he had done that, that he had done that. That's what I'm talking about. You have to see Jesus. You must see him. You must have this relationship with him because when someone comes against you and says what you're saying is complete rubbish, what you're talking about is utter nonsense, you know that you know that you know that you know that he's real that he lives. That, do you see what I mean? You see, you can refute all sorts of things, but no one can refute that because you have met the Lord Jesus Christ. You have sat with him and talked with him and he's talked with you and he has touched your heart or your mouth or your head or whatever you want to call it. He has touched you and he has said, you are mine and I am yours and I want you to go. Nothing would stop you going. Nothing. Why? I mean, who is Jesus? What's he like? He's the invincible, immortal, invisible God. He is beautiful and majestic and splendid and powerful and full of grace and mercy. He is faithful and just. He is everything that you could ever want and more. Let's supposing he's sitting here in front of me like Alan. And I'm talking to him and he's talking to me. Do you think you could ever tell me that he's not real? Could you ever say, well, that's just a load of nonsense and you surely can't believe that. What would I say? I'd say, poor you. <laughs> poor you. You haven't sat with this man. You haven't talked to him and heard him talk to you. Poor you. And you would know. Exactly, Maureen. You have an experience with him. Yes, yes. So, Isaiah and Jeremiah, they had the call, and so do you. So do you. And just like Isaiah said, I'm too sinful. I'm too sinful. There's too much stuff in my life. There's too many issues. And God touched his mouth and sent him out. And just like Jeremiah said, I'm too young. 
I'm just too young, I don't know enough. Or I'm too old. I'm too old, where would I go? Who would listen to me? God touched his mouth. God touched him. Because it doesn't matter who you are and it doesn't matter your issues and it doesn't matter anything that is going on in your life. It has no, it makes no difference. God wants you today and tomorrow and the next day and the next day. He wants you to take out the weapons of your warfare and fight. Look at um, 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel 23, verse 11. Go back in your um, Bible, 2 Samuel 23, verse 11 and 12. 2 Samuel 23, yeah, 23, verse 11 and 12. Now after him was Shammah, the son of Agi, a Hararite, and the Philistines were gathered into a troop where there was a plot of ground, where there was a plot of ground full of lentils, and the people fled from the Philistines. But he, Shammah, took his stand in the midst of the plot, defended it, and struck the Philistines, and the Lord brought about a great victory. So you don't have to be Jeremiah, you don't have to be Isaiah. You don't have to be Moses or Abraham or any of those people. You can be Shema. You can be in your barley field or your lentil patch. And you can see the enemy coming. And you can decide, I'm not running anymore. I'm standing and I'm fighting. And as soon as you stand, God will bring about a great victory. Why? Because that's who God is. This call that God is doing individually and collectively is for every believer to make a stand for the Lord. Every believer, wherever we are, on the lentil patch, whatever, wherever we are, to make a stand for the Lord. We are to do it, as I say, individually and corporately. A great army of believers. A great army of believers. And the first weapon, uh, we do it, or first of all, we do it. Why do we do it? Why would you do it? Why would you go and make a stand individually and then with a group of people? Why would you decide I'm making a stand this far and no further? I'm not moving any further from this. Why would you do that? You love God. Say that again. Yeah. There. Who was that, Maureen? Who do you care about, Maureen? Right. And why? Do you, what? What do you? You said you cared about them, and what you said you care about them, and you don't want there. Unless you believe hell exists, unless you believe that's where people are going, you will not fight. Why would you? If you think God's this loving God and he's going to save everybody, if you believe universalism, if you think that nothing bad is going to happen to people, why would you fight? Why would you do any of it if you didn't believe that? Um, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 and 4. 2 Corinthians 10, 3 and 4. Um, 
For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Um, what do you notice about these weapons? They're not of the flesh. What does that mean? Yeah, they're spiritual and they're mighty. What would you need a spiritual weapon for? Yeah, spiritual battles. Who do you fight spiritual battles with? Who's the enemy? Not your husband or your wife or your next door neighbor. The spiritual enemy is Satan and his demons. They are the, the reason we have spiritual uh, uh, weapons, because we are fighting a spiritual enemy. Um, and the first weapon we've been given, which everybody will know, because this is desiring truth, so what's the first weapon we've been given? The Word of God. Don't you love it? It's the Word of God. Okay, so I want you just to turn to Ephesians... Um, Ephesians 6, 17. Somebody shout that out. Ephesians 6, verse 17. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Thank you. And then Hebrews 4, verse 12. The sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. And somebody read Hebrews 4, verse 12. Thank you. So, the um, Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. So, I mean, there's just two scriptures. You can go all through the Bible and find this same truth, that the Word of God is the sword of the Spirit. It is the sword of the Spirit. Um, so, how will you pick up the sword of the Spirit and then begin to use it? How will you do that? Reading it, yeah, and? Studying it, and? Yes, all of that is true, but the whole Bible tells you the same thing about the Word of God. Ezra chapter 7, verse uh, 6 to 10. This is exactly what it said all over the scripture. Ezra chapter 7, um, verse 6 to 10. Uh, sorry, you just get there. My Bible is still, the pages are still so lovely and new, but I can't get to them quick enough. Ezra chapter 7. Um, verse 6 to 10. Um, <clears throat> this Ezra went up from Babylon, and he was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses, which the Lord God of Israel had given. And the king granted him all he requested, because the hand of the Lord his God was upon him. Some of the sons of Israel and some of the priests, the Levites, the singers, the gatekeepers and the temple servants went up to Jerusalem in the seventh year of King Artaxerxes. He came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was the seventh year of the king. For on the first of the month, he began to go up from Babylon. And on the first of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem. Why? Because the good hand of his God was upon him. Why? For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to practice it 
and to teach his statutes and ordinances in Israel. Do you want to know what the sword of the Spirit is? It is the word of God. But you, in order to use it and wield it, you must study the word of God. You must practice the word of God. And you must share the word of God or teach it. It's the same word. So study, practice, share. That is the sword of the Spirit. That is how you pick up the sword of the Spirit and how you use it. You see, you can quote scripture to me. You could come with your verses and you could quote, you could memorize the verses. We've got memory cards and you could quote it all to me. But if you don't practice it in your life, you tell me you don't believe it. You don't believe it. And so then when you start to try to share something with me about God, I don't take any notice of you because you don't live what you say you believe. So you have to know what God says. You have to receive that for yourself so much so that you practice it and then you can share it with other people. That is how you pick up the sword of the Spirit and use it. You study, you practice and you share or teach. And that's the same everywhere in Scripture. 2 Timothy chapter 4, um, verses 6 to 7, Paul telling Timothy, fight the fight, you know, um, stand up, take up arms. Um, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6 to 7. For I am already, this is Paul, I am already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to have loved his appearing. Do you know what happens? This is Paul. This is Paul. I mean, he, he saw the risen Jesus Christ. He spent time with him in heavenly places. He saw things that were too wonderful to talk about. He couldn't talk about them. And God gave him a thorn in the flesh, so he didn't exhort himself because of them. But you see what he's saying? I have fought the fight. I have um, kept the faith. I have finished the course. He's not just saying, I told you about the fight, and I told you about the faith. And I, I was very careful to learn it all and make you learn it. What he's saying is, I actually did it. I'm being poured out like a drink offering. I know my time to go is soon. And I can say, absolutely, I fought the fight. It was my fight, and I fought it. I finished the course. I ran the race that was set for me. And I kept the faith. I kept the faith. Can you see how that mirrors Ezra? Study the word, pra practice the word, share the word. It's the same. It's, it's, Paul took that word to himself and lived out what he said he believed. He heard it, he, he lived it, and he shared it. He shared it so that you and I can know it. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, you'll know these verses. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses, um, 
surrounding us. Let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. You see, that's wonderful, isn't it? We're going to run the race set before us. But what did Paul have to do? Oh, sorry, I don't know that Paul wrote Hebrews. What did the writer have to do? He had to lay aside the sin that's so easily entangled and all the different encumbrances. Lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. He had to know what's an encumbrance and he had to know what was sin. He had to lay it aside and then he had to follow Christ. It's the same. It's the same everywhere. Know the word, live the word, share the word. Preach this gospel. That's what Paul will say to Timothy. Preach the word in season and out of season. In the same letter that he tells him to fight the fight. You have to fight your own fight. I have to fight my own fight. Our culture, the world and the enemy are trying to send us off to sleep. It's like a little pill. Take this little pill and you'll feel better in the morning. That's what the enemy is doing all the time, and making us blind to the reality of this world. Blinding our eyes. We're caught up in disputes and disagreements all the time. The church that I'm attending in Wimbledon, they have just gone through a horrendous split. Why? Because somebody wanted control. Somebody, a Christian, wanted control. They've gone through this terrible split. Hurt, everyone's hurt. Everyone is like weeping. Do you, how much time do you think they're giving to the thought that they're there to fight? They're so busy fighting each other, defending themselves against the onslaughts of other Christians. You know, it's just mind-boggling. Of course, that's the work of the enemy. It's the work of the enemy. We're in disputes, we're in disagreements. We're always arguing about, is the rapture before or after? I mean, you know, during? When's it happening? I mean, is it once saved, always saved? Or can you lose your salvation? And, you know, all these things, we're just spending hours and hours and hours discussing them, and all the time, what are you doing? You're thinking about me. It's all about me. It's about my opinion and my thinking and my way that's the right way. And I think God must be saying, can you just get up out of your chair and go? Can you just go? Can you just say, well, that's okay. We just have to agree to disagree and get on and fight together. We've got an enemy and he's at work. I mean, I don't know, you know, I meet lots of people much, much older than me, of course, because I'm not even in that realm, but people who think that now they're older, they can take it easy. Just take it easy. I mean, I've done my bit. I ran my race. I'm going to take it easy. Uh, you know, I mean, what could I do anyway? I mean, I've got grey hair. I haven't because it's neatly disguised. But, you know, <laughs> I've got grey hair. Who's going to listen to me? You know, this, this concept that, that we're too old. And, oh, 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 my goodness. If you knew what I'd done for the Lord, you would so understand that I am now going to take a cruise around the Caribbean. Because, <laughs> I, I mean, I need to rest. That is the deception and it's not just, you know, it's this leisure 
uh, mentality that, you know, that, um, that we deserve it. That we deserve it. Yeah. Well, we deserve it. If you've been born and brought up in this country or in this part of the world, you really have had much, much more than you had ever deserved. Really. I mean, just move yourself to China, Africa, Middle East. Go to those places and tell them that you deserve a rest. How old was Moses when the Lord appeared to him in the burning bush? 80. 80. How old was Abraham when God told him to leave his country? 75. How old was he when he had his son? 100. 99, actually. 99. How old was the Apostle John when he got the Revelation, the book of Revelation? How old was he? He was in his 90s. He might have been 94. Do you know what was happening to him on Patmos? He was being persecuted in exile. The tradition has it that he was uh, turned upside down, boiled upside down in a vat of oil to death. You tell him when you see him that you deserved the cruise because you'd worked really hard for the Lord. That's deception. It's just deception. Christians all over the world are suffering. And Paul writes to the Philippian church, and he says in chapter 1, verse 29, he says, For to you it has been granted to suffer for Christ's sake. For you, to you it has been granted to suffer for Christ's sake. It's a gift. Christians suffering and God calling. So you're too old, or you think you're going to retire, or you think you need a bit of me time, or I need to be totally healed of all my stuff, physical, mental, emotional, spiritual, I need to be totally healed before I can get out there and fight. Because, I mean, I'm, I just, you know, I, I want to be perfect. I want to clean up, clean, get cleaned up, and, and get rid of my issues, and you know, and then I'll be able to go out there and fight. Is that true? How do you know? There you go, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, yes, verse 8 to 10, where Paul's got this thorn in the flesh and he implores the Lord to take it from him. Please, take, he implores it three times, take this, this thorn from me and... Um, and God says, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Are you sick? So there's some things you can't do, but you can still fight. Are you, have you got a lot of issues in your life? You'd probably be better laying aside the encumbrance, taking them off. But even if you don't, you can still fight. Have you got some problems? You know, problems that you can't sort out? Well, so join the rest of the human race. You can still fight. It is deception to think that you've got to be perfect before you can live for the Lord. It is deception to think that in your dark moments, in your 
in your sickness, mental, physical, whatever, you can't do anything for the Lord. That's deception. So, let's begin then to look at um, Jeremiah's call and to look at it as if it's our call. Um, Not everybody will get the call of Jeremiah or uh, Isaiah. Um, Jeremiah was one of the major prophets and we won't all have that call. Um, And Jeremiah will say he's too young, which is another thing. Sometimes when you're young, you think that nobody's going to listen to you. Um, But um, all of those perceptions about yourself are wrong. If I, actually, I will ask you, I want you to write down on a piece of paper that no one else will see, just write it down now, the perception you have of yourself as to why God can't use you or why you can't fight. Just, you know, and just to make everybody feel good, even if you haven't got any perception like that, pretend and write something on the page. I have no perception like that. I'm ready to fight. That's okay, but just write. I want you to write something down. Um, the reason I'm asking you to do that is because um, what the Bible teaches us is that God's perspective is completely the opposite to ours so he doesn't see you as you see yourself and also that God brings into existence what does not exist so your thinking about all the stuff of your life, be whatever that is, your circumstances, your sickness, your, your sin, whatever it is, you're thinking about all of that, and God's saying, but all of that doesn't matter, because I'm going to bring into existence something that you have not seen yet. That's what uh, scripture tells us, that he brings into being things that are not yet there. You're a new creation in Christ Jesus. He brought you into being. Um, yeah, uh, the, re- the reference for that is uh, Romans 4, 18 to 21. Um, sorry, trying to find verse 18. Um, A father of many nations I have made you in the presence of him whom he believed, even God, who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. In hope against hope he believed so that he might become a father of many nations according to what had been spoken, so shall your descendants be. So Abraham believed even though everything in his life pointed against it. He knew that God calls into being that which does not exist. Hebrews 11, 17 to 19. Um, Hebrews 11, 17. By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, who he had received the promise, and he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son, It was he to whom it was said, in Isaac your descendants shall be called. He considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type. What do do those scriptures mean to you? Yeah, even you, Anne, yeah. Nothing is impossible for God, but more specifically, what does that mean? 
I mean, just more specifically, think about this. This is a call to, to stand and fight in the army of God. It's a call to say to, to say to us, clear your mind of all the distractions and understand why you're here. So what does it specifically mean that Abraham thought these things in your life? Yes, that though you may never have experienced the ability to do what he's calling you to do, he will give it to you. Exactly, exactly. We're actually just going to get onto that. Um, no, that's great, Rich, thank you. Yeah, no, it's good. Um, it's, it's really good. It's, it's a co- good confirmation for me. <laughs> so he will call into existence what does not exist. So look at yourself. What don't you have? Okay, I don't have youth, but he will give me energy. I, I'm not articulate, but he will give me the words. I'm not strong, but he will give me the strength. I'm not intelligent, but he will enable me to speak with academics. Do you see what I mean? I'm not physically able, but he will enable me to fight, to stand and fight. Exactly. Yes. Exactly. 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 Yeah. Exactly. That's what we... Exactly. What did we talk about in family gifts? I was saying, you know, God doesn't come in with by the spirit and just open a suitcase and, okay, here, you, Sandy, I'm going to give you helps. That's it now. Go off and help, okay? And I'm going to stay sitting back here. God doesn't do that. He comes in and he starts to enable you to do just exactly what he wants you to do. And the more you give over to him, the more he enables you to do. And yeah, he does turn upside down anything you think about yourself. Um, so let's look at Jeremiah. Just, um, we'll just start and then we'll finish in a minute. We're, I think we started a bit late. I'm just, where's my schedule? Oh no, we're okay. So um, Jeremiah chapter 1. Um, in, we won't start at verse 1 because he's telling us when he got this, this word. We'll start in verse 4. Now the word of the Lord came to me saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I have appointed you a prophet to the nations. Okay, so let's break that up because we're going to put ourselves into this. So in, in that, just in that verse, what does God tell Jeremiah? Just list it. The first thing is, um, before I formed you in the womb, before I formed you, I knew you. Before I formed you, I knew you. I knew you. Well, if God knows you, what do you think that... What, what's the limit of his knowing? None. So he knows everything about you. Everything. Okay, he knows you. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And that knowing is intimate knowledge. It's the real knowledge of, uh, of relationship. God knew you before he formed you. What does that mean to you? If that's true of you, and it is, Romans 8... Verse 29, um, I'll just go there. You stay in, um, 
in um, Jeremiah. Romans 8, verse 29 says, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew. So he foreknew. He knew you. He knew you. So before um, I formed you, uh, God knew you. What does that mean to you? You don't need to hide. You don't need to hide. What else? There's a purpose, yeah. But even beyond, even just forget the purpose for a minute. Just let's think about what does it mean that God knew you? That He knew you. It means that I'm amazing. Yeah. There's something amazing about what He does. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. There. It's there. He knows exactly what your weaknesses are and what your failings are and what your issues are. He knows what you haven't got. He knows what you haven't got. He knew you. He knew your limitations. He knows everything about you. And still He calls. And still he calls. Can you see why it's important to understand that God knows everything about you, all your weakness, all your failures, all, your f- all, all the things you can't do, but he is the God who calls into existence things which do not exist? What is it in you that you think God cannot supply? What don't you have that you think he can't give you? What is it? If he's calling you to fight and to stand and to fight and to, to do this, what do you think he wouldn't do to enable you to, do the, to answer the call? Nothing. nothing. He knew you before he formed you. He knows everything about you. Nothing is hidden. Nothing is hidden. He knows you. And yet he calls. When Jeremiah said, but I'm only a youth, God said, really? Are you? Oh, my goodness. I hadn't thought that. <laughs> and when I say, Lord, I'm a woman, I'm a woman trying to teach in a church that says women can't do that. Don't you know what you're doing? And God says, yes. Do you see what I mean? It's like we have all these things that we bring to God and we say, oh, well, I, you know, this, obviously this is not for me. He knows you. Second, what's the second thing? He formed him, God knew him, and um, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, and before you were born, I I set you apart, I consecrated you. What does it mean to be consecrated or set apart? Yeah, it means to be made holy for, yeah, for God, and so therefore for a holy purpose. So before you were born, I knew you, and before you were born, I set you apart. I set you apart for myself. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. I set you apart for myself. What's God's purpose on the planet? What has been his purpose since Adam and Eve? Redemption. Redemption is the purpose. God set you apart before you were born. For what? To, for redemption, and then for, then for glory, and then for, that's a great one, I had forgotten that one, Jane. yeah, and then for, to speak redemption, to live redemption, to share redemption, that's what you were consecrated for, 
Okay, you were, you were set apart for holiness. So how can you stand and fight? You need to know holiness. You need to live holiness. And you need to share holiness. It's the same pattern throughout Scripture about everything. Have you received mercy and grace? You need to know what that grace is. You need to know it, experience it. And then you need to live it out in your life. That means you have to be gracious. And you have to be merciful. You have to be kind. All those things. And then you need to share the truth of that. This is why I'm gracious. This is why I live like I do. This is why I do this. Because I'm redeemed by the Saviour of the world. He gave every Christian grace. If, if you are a believer, you have the grace of God. And that grace is powerful. And then just before we break, God formed him in the womb. What does that mean? God formed you in the womb. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. What does that mean? Yeah, he formed, he knit you together in your mother's womb, Psalm 139. He knows every day of your life before any one of them came to be. He knows every number, every hair on your head. He knows everything about you. We are according to his plan. Yeah, according to his plan and his purpose. He shaped him, he designed him. Now, I mean, we could get into all sorts of things about that, which would be a whole another subject. But what I'm going to talk about is the the you who is you is the form, is the one that God shaped in the womb. The you who is you. So not necessarily how your body is, but the you who is you God formed. It's, it's such a big discussion and debate that it's too long to go into. So just take the essence of who you are is what God formed. Now, if he formed you in the womb and he, and he knew you and he consecrated you, what can you be absolutely sure of? That you will be able to do whatever he's calling you to do. Go ahead, Maureen. Yes. Of course. Precious and, yeah, and honoured in his sight and he loves us. We could go on and on about what this all means. Um, God appointed Jeremiah to be a prophet. He's not necessarily appointing you to be a prophet, but every one of you has a purpose and a ministry. So I'm going to just finish by saying these things. You are not your own. You belong to the person who made you. You belong to God. Everybody ultimately belongs to God. It's just that you know it. We know you are not your own, you are God's. You are not self-made, you are God-made. You are not an accident, you are a design. You didn't first know him, he first knew you. Your life is rooted and grounded in God. And as his child, you have been set apart for him 
and by him. Why does God want us to know these things? Yes, please do. For you see your calling, brethren, but not many wise yes. according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble according for God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty, and the best things of the world, and the things which are despised. God has chosen yeah. that the things which are not bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. Yes, thank you, David. That's 1 um, uh, Corinthians chapter 1. Thank you, 26 to 29. I've got a couple of other references. That's a really good one. I'm going to add that. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 26 to 29. And then um, Ephesians 1, verse 3, th- 3 to 14. Romans 8, 28 to 30. Sorry. <laughs> Romans 8, 28 to 30. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 10. And then um, I'll finish here with Romans 8, 31. Yeah. Um, the one that David said was 1 Corinthians 1, 26 to 29. Um, Ephesians 1, 3 to 14. Romans 8, 28 to 30. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 10. And the last one I'm going to say is Romans 8, verse 31. Why does God want us to know these things? Because the truth gives us courage. What shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? So, Father, we're just going to take a break. We thank you for this morning, this first session, and we ask, Lord, that you would be in our conversations and, um, and Lord, bring us back eager to hear some more. In Jesus' name, amen.